Well, good morning. As Nathan said, my name is Tim, and we're, we're so glad um, that you've come and, and joined us this morning. This is, uh, this is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. It sort of came to me in a moment um, where I was wrestling with death and its implications as a pastor. And there's a lot here, and I think a lot we often miss. And so I want to pray for us that God would open our eyes and see this, this story, this text um, afresh. So let's pray. God, the only way we can understand you is if you help us. So I pray your spirit would come, open this text, this story, open Jesus before us in a way we could never see without his help. Would you fill us with understanding and hope to understand what happened some 2,000 years ago in this little village called Bethany? Help us to see. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some questions only have one answer. And as a pastor, I'm frequently asked those questions. And when I was in seminary in Chicago, I, I worked at Starbucks, and one of my coworkers was this sweet older lady named Marin. And if there was ever a dictionary definition of a grandmother, Marin was it. She was sweet and kind, gentle and respectful, always looking out for those of us who were younger than her. And when there was some attitude that she needed to return with a little bit of sass, she always did it in a way that made you like her even more. That everybody loved Mara, not just me. And so our regular customers who came through went to the window to see Marin along with getting their cup of the coffee. And if any of us were there in place of Marin, the first question was always, where's Marin? Because that was a sad trade for Marin. See, her sweetness, her gentleness, her humility, her love, her graciousness meant that I worked with Marin for months before I realized that she was dying of leukemia. It meant that everyone that she saw on a daily basis who came to see her smile had no idea the internal struggle of her heart and her life, the questions that she was asking. And so I usually came in to work early to get ahead so I could read and, and drink some coffee before my shift started. And one day, Marin sat down across from me. And the look on her face showed me one of those questions was coming. And Marin looked at me and asked, Tim, how can I know it will all be worth it? How can I know that God has not abandoned me? That some questions only have one answer, and I know I'm not the one who can speak it. That if you live long enough in this world, you will find there are things deeply wrong with this place. And maybe it's when you went to school and you saw your school, um, all that can happen there and how difficult it can be just to be in a school. Or maybe it's at your workplace or with your family or with your friends. If you live here long enough or very long at all, you'll find this place is deeply wrong and flawed. And maybe for some of you, that's why you have a hard time believing in God. That you look at this world and you think, how can there be a good God and let all of this happen? How can there be a God who's powerful and good and loving and gracious and watch all of this, what we see and we would stop almost every day and yet is silent? Or maybe for some of you, that's why you, you are a Christian and you feel like you're just holding on to faith, that you're waiting for God to show up and you're wondering if he's coming. 
You're wondering if it's too late, if there's anyone there to answer the questions of your heart. Well, John 11 is in many ways the answer to this tension that we all feel. But we have a a tendency, I think, to, to think that we know this story better than we do. That I think there's a darkness here in John 11, and to own, the only way to understand this story is to stare into the darkness and ask the question at the center of this text. That as we unpack this story, we'll see the story is really all around a question, how Jesus replies to that question, what his answer to that question is, and finally, the glory of God. So the question, the reply, the answer, and the glory Well, we start with with a question, and we start really with three characters, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, three siblings who obviously had some bit of relationship with Jesus. They were close to him in some way, and we see this in a couple of places in John chapter 11. Then in verse 5, it says that, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But there's a friendship here between the three, a closeness, a love that that went beyond just what Jesus typically had with people. And that's why when Lazarus... Mary and Martha's brother get sick, they immediately send for Jesus. And they don't just say, hey, Jesus, could you come over here? Lazarus isn't doing well. Please come. No, what they, what they request is, it's simple. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Right? There's an assumption there. Jesus, of course, you'd come. You love Lazarus. You're close to us. We're grieving. He's suffering. He may die. Come. Please come. He whom you love is, is ill. But Jesus doesn't go. And that's why when Mary and Martha, when he finally gets to Mary and Martha, after Lazarus has died, they come out to him and they both say the same thing to him. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And behind that statement's a question, right? So Jesus, where were you? What did you have to do that was so important you couldn't come and help us? What were you doing? Where were you? It's a question every single person in this room will ask at some point in your life. If you're not asking it now or if you haven't asked it already, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you delaying? And so let's ask the question here in John chapter 11. Why is Jesus delaying? What's going on here? And, and you get this in verses 5 and 6, and the, the, what, what's going on here isn't that encouraging. And what happens is now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, right? We read that. So... He loves them, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Jesus hears Lazarus is ill, so he doesn't do anything. He just waits for two days. In fact, we read on in in John 11, he waits until Lazarus is dead before he does anything. He doesn't send a message back. He doesn't hurry off. He just remains in the place where he was for two more days. And that's why the question at the center of this text is, where was Jesus? Well, he was 100 miles away. While his friends whom he loved grieved the death and suffering and end of their brother. He was silent, distant, away from those who needed him. We're going to all ask that question, God, where are you? And it's a question that we should ask, God, where are you? And the question, the way it's answered in this text is not encouraging. And ultimately, there's only two questions to where 
is God? There's only two answers to that question. One is that, that there is no God. Rather, the reason that we are crying out for help in those moments, the reason when we feel overwhelmed and burdened and full of grief is because there's no one there to answer that question. Or the other option, what this text is presenting to us, is that there is a God and he's responsible for everything that will happen in your life. That nothing will catch him off guard. If you read the beginning of John chapter 11, it's clear Jesus knows when Lazarus is going to die and when it's time for him to go. And so this text doesn't let us off with, with God not being sure what's going to happen or being unclear of what might take place. No, this, this, listen, Jesus knew what was going to happen. And he's in some sense responsible because he chooses not to go and save Lazarus. And so if there is a God, it means whatever you face in life, he saw it coming. And I don't say that as, as some self-assured young pastor who's got it figured out. I say that as someone who has repeatedly asked the question, God, where are you? God, where were you when that family watched their child die? God, where were you when that father walked out on his family and his kids? God, why won't you heal? Why do you delay? Where are you? Now, I don't just say God knows everything that's coming as some cheap answer. That, that makes it worse. Right? There's a sense for those of us that, that follow Jesus, the problem of evil is, is much greater for us than it is for people who don't follow Jesus. It's a bigger problem for Martha and Mary and Lazarus because they thought Jesus loved them. They thought he was their friend, and yet he doesn't come. That For those of us that try and follow after God, the problem of evil is worse because it's personal. Which is why we ask not the question, where is God? Which is the question people tend to ask. Well, where's God? What's God doing? Or where was God? That's not the question we ask as Christians. The, the, the question we ask is, where are you, God? It's a personal question. Because God's not some impersonal force who we try to talk into letting us do the, what we want to do or having the lives we want. God is a person whom we know and whom we're supposed to trust in and who in moments like this appears to be silent and abandon us when we most need him. And the Bible is full of people asking, God, where are you? That we have entire books of the Bible devoted to that question, books that we tend not to read in our American context because it makes faith messier. Books where people are asking, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you delaying? Why would you do this? This makes no sense to us. And what you'll find is as, as you read through those books, God never rebukes those people for asking those questions. He invites the question. He invites the doubt and the grief and the darkness. And so we as a church, we should be a place where the grieving can go, where they can run to and ask the question, where was God? Because that's the question at the heart of this text. And maybe you are in a place where, well, I would love to ask that question, but Tim, I can't believe in God because of what I've seen. Or you're suffering, and because you're suffering, you have a hard time taking that question to God. And I would just encourage you, read those parts of the Bible where people ask those questions. You'll find a lot of common ground. You'll find a willingness to wrestle with God that we tend not to want to go to. And I think you'll find you're asking the right question, but you're looking for the wrong answer. Because some questions, they only have one answer. And no one in this room can speak it. And so where is God? Well, we, 
we see here in Jesus that he was delaying. And now let's look at his reply, what he says to Martha and Mary. And you'll notice he has two completely different reactions to, to Martha and Mary. Right, to Martha, Martha comes, says, Lord, if, if my brother had been, had, if you'd come here, my, my brother would not have died. But she has a second statement to what she says to Jesus. After she says that, she says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so she still has some bit of faith. Jesus, I don't know why you did what you did, but I know you're still unique, special in some way. And so Jesus responds to this statement by saying, well, your brother will rise again which was almost obvious, right? She's a Jew. She believed that at the end of, the, the end of time, God was going to raise his people to life. And she's like, Jesus, of course I believe this. Yes, he'll rise at the end of, of all time. I, I get that. And then what Jesus says next is either the most selfish, narcissistic, crazy thing a person could say, or he's the only one who can say it. Because he looks at Martha and he says, Martha, yes, there's a resurrection coming at the end of all time when people will be raised up. But I am the resurrection. I am the life. And anyone who believes in me, though he or she dies, yet shall they live. Do you believe this? I mean, imagine a friend saying that to you, right? You call them on the phone, my brother's dying, get here, I need you. And they don't show. But they finally come to the funeral, and, and they show up, and, and they come up to you, and they say, listen, your brother's death really is all about me. I'm going to raise everyone up at the end of all time, and that's why I didn't come. It'd be crazy. It'd be narcissistic, right? And yet we read these words, right, all of us, and we think, boy, Jesus is just so encouraging and, and kind, and yet he's crazy if he's not this. And Martha says, I believe, and she does, Right? In some sense, but she has no idea what she, how true what she says is. And that question Jesus ends with, do you believe this? I think we tend to think of belief as Christians as I agree with these propositional statements. Right? I believe there's a resurrection at the end of all time. I believe in this. I think this is true. And that's not the question Jesus is asking. Because belief in faith, it's always personal. It's always in something or someone. That Jesus is coming to her and saying, listen, I'm the resurrection and the life. Yes, I know. I could have been here and saved Lazarus, but I didn't. He died. I get all of that. But I'm life. I'm resurrection. Do you believe this? And the question he's really asking is, do you trust me? Given everything you just walked through, Martha, do you trust me? And that's the question at the heart of everything Jesus is saying is here, is do we trust him? Even when it looks like he's abandoned us, he's silent, and he's walked away. And that's his question to Martha. But to Mary, he has a totally different response. Because Mary comes, and she does not add a second statement like Martha does. Martha says, even now, Jesus, I know God will give you whatever you ask of him. Mary doesn't say that. She just says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then, that's it. She falls at his feet weeping. And Jesus' response to her is completely different. That you see this in verses 33 and, and through 35. When he responds in a totally different way, here's what happens. He says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. 
Right, that to Martha, Jesus draws her into a personal trust beyond some theological truth at the end of all time to trusting him. But to Mary, Jesus just breaks down and weeps. That this word that we translate deeply moved in spirit is actually a really terrible translation. And normally our, our English Bibles do a great job of translating the original Greek, but in this case, it, we just missed it. Because the word there is, is actually really difficult to attribute to Jesus. In fact, it's why many have read this story and found this story to be so trustworthy because no one would make up that word about a prophet or someone claiming to be God. Because the word doesn't mean he was deeply moved. It means he was, he was angry, filled with outrage, bellowing with anger. Jesus stands at the tomb of Lazarus and he's filled with rage. And then he weeps. And what a reaction, right? Completely different than Martha. And Jesus' reaction to death, right? Both anger and tears should be our reaction to death as a church. And so here he is. For me, it raises the question, though, too, of why, is, why is Jesus so angry? I mean, he's, he's God, or at least he's claiming to be. Why would he be so angry and kind of fly off the handle here? And I think the reason is because, because Jesus, like us, was never meant to stand at the tomb of his friend. But he knows that grief and that sadness and anger in a way we never could. Because Jesus looks at this world he made, and he sees all of us living in ways that, that sometimes we're just selfish and petty, or we see things that, that, that we do to others, and he sees things that, we are, are, that are done to us. He sees the grief and the suffering of this world. He sees everything bad about it, and he knows it never had to be like this. That's not where, that was never his intention. That when God made this world, he presented a feast to us, and every last one of us chose a famine. And it will kill all of us. Lead us right to a tomb. And so Jesus here stands at the tomb of his, his friend, angry, because he knew it never meant to be like this. And even worse, he's come to do something about it yet again. He didn't just make a good world and then give up on it when we ruined it. He's entered again to come and to speak and to offer a kingdom, a world without tombs, and he'll be crucified for it. He stands at the tomb of his friend, and he knows death in a way you and I never will. As hard and as, as difficult as we know death, he knows it even more, which is why he has the biggest reaction to Lazarus' death of anyone and so what that means is, listen, if, if, if you're in a place of suffering or grief, if, if you're in a place where you're not sure where God is or you think he may be delaying with you, all of that may be true, but what is not true is that God is not indifferent to your suffering, and this text is trying to get us to see that. Jesus does not stand as a creator and, des and designer and sustainer of this world as someone who does not care what's going on in this place. He cares. And I think we as a church should have the same reaction to death that Jesus had, to the problem of evil that Jesus had, which is outrage and tears. But often we in the church, like our culture, sanitize death and evil. We explain it away or we put cosmetics on it or we have little statements that we like to repeat like, well, death, that's a part of life. Or God, God just needed another angel. And yet to Christians, that's nonsense. And the church should be a place where the grieving feel most comfortable because it's here. Their questions are welcomed. They're not pushed back. Doubt is affirmed. 
Suffering is welcomed. Tears, are, we are, our doors are open to them. Because we're in good company. Jesus had the same reaction to death. And so let us not, as a church, sanitize grief and suffering. Let us not have empty cliches. And as you think about in your own life, interacting with people who are suffering or facing death or going through evil, don't have your pat verse to hand to them or your cliched response. Affirm the grief and the outrage and the tears. It's okay. Jesus did. Or if, if this is a point where, again, you struggle to believe in God because of the problem of evil, let, let me just say you have good company with, with Jesus. And sure, maybe there is no God. But at the very least, you have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus has a fundamentally different view of evil and suffering as every other religious leader in religion that you'll encounter. No one reacts to death in religion like Jesus does. And so if you look at this world and you think, it can't be like this, and it fills you with anger and tears and frustration and sadness, take it to Jesus. Maybe he doesn't exist. Maybe it's all a farce. But if it's real, he's the one place who knows even better than you the frustration and the anger that's in your heart. And maybe, maybe it's even why it's there for you. That that feeling of disappointment and dissatisfaction with this world is because God has placed it there. To say there is something better. And the answer to your questions is not an explanation explaining evil away. The answer to your question is only one thing. And it's what Jesus is about to say here in John 11. That you'll notice Jesus doesn't explain himself to Martha and Mary. He doesn't explain why he delayed or what he was doing. What's interesting though is he does tell other people why he's delaying. In verse 4 in, in John 11, Jesus explains to his disciples and those around him everything that's about to happen and why he's going to allow Lazarus to die. It says, when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death, which is sort of, excuse me, hinting what's to come. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That Mary and Martha are going to suffer and watch their brother die. Lazarus himself is going to suffer and die, waiting for Jesus, who's not coming, so God can be glorified. For how many of us, that just makes it worse, right? Oh, that sounds great for God. What about Mary or Martha or Lazarus? What about them? And there's a reason Jesus doesn't bring the explanation to Mary and Martha, because what can God say to the suffering? I mean, in your life, what explanation could he give you that would make it all right? What could he say? What reason could he give? That's why Jesus doesn't come with an explanation. He comes with an answer, and it's the only answer to the deepest questions of our heart. It's the only thing that he could say that could make this story tie together and could fill us with hope. And so Jesus walks up to the tomb where Lazarus lay, and he says, take away the stone. To which Martha responds, Jesus, he's been dead four days. Don't take away the stone. Right? It's, it, Jesus, it's too late for that. You had your chance. He's dead. And Jesus looks at her and Martha and says, Martha, didn't I tell you if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So Martha steps back. And Jesus steps forward as they roll the stone away. 
And he says the one thing that he could say to any of us that would answer our question, that would calm our grief, bring joy to our sadness. He looks into that tomb full of death, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. And everything that was dead in that tomb was raised back to life. Because that's the only thing that Jesus could say that could make it all right, right? Jesus couldn't explain to Mary and Martha what really happens or what we really need is there's something dead that needs to come back to life. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. Do you believe this? Do you trust me? That even when I look like it's, I've abandoned you, even when it looks, especially when it looks like it's too late and he's been dead for too long and death has had its, its way for too long, that's the moment when my voice can speak and make it all undone. That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And at his voice saying, come out, everything that is dead will die. Death itself will cease. At the sound of his voice saying, come out. That's his answer. It's his answer to your grief and your suffering and your questions. It's not an explanation. It's an answer. And he promises, if you trust him, especially when it looks like you can't, it will never be too late. It will never be too far gone. And just when you think it is, like Martha He'll roll away the stone and call out life from what you thought was dead. So that's his answer. But there's still a question maybe brewing that, that needs to be answered, which is, okay, that's, that's nice. But why did Jesus let this family go through all of this, right? And I think the hint is to go back to why Jesus said this happened, the, the glory of God, the answer that seems so unsatisfying to us. If we, if we track Mary's story or through this, this, this text, she begins in grief and sadness, right? Martha comes and she can have a little bit of a theological dis- discussion with Jesus. Jesus, I believe this. I'm, I'm trusting. Mar- Mary comes and, and she's just broken, full of tears and grief and anguish, falls at Jesus' feet weeping. But that's not the last image we get of Mary in the Gospel of John. The next image we get is in John 12, where Mary comes to Jesus' feet again, but this time as an act of worship with ointment to anoint Jesus' body in this extravagant act of worship. Because the anointment, or the ointment that she used would have been worth nearly a, a year's worth of wages. She comes and, and offers this massive offering to Jesus, which raises the question, well, how? Why? What, what changed? How did she go from this place of grief and despair and feeling abandoned by Jesus to this extravagant act of worship? And I, I, I want to say it's not just because Lazarus was dead and now he's alive. It's not just that. It's more. That Jesus doesn't just say, listen, I'm the resurrection. If you die, you can live again. Because I don't know about you, I don't want to be re-raised with this body. I just don't. That's not good news to me. I need life. I don't just need resurrection. I need life. I need a world where I don't have to read about all that I read about. A world where I don't have to ask, God, where are you? I need a world of life. And that's what Jesus is saying he's offering here. Is he's not just the resurrection. He's the life. And Mary saw the glory of God. Glory so rich and so full. It did not just raised Lazarus from the dead. It undid her grief, and it undid her question, and it, it, 
it gave her something, a joy to point to, that made everything sad worth it. Now, Jesus isn't just resurrection, he's a life. And I think Fyodor Dostoevsky captured this really well in the Brothers Karamazov, where he, he says this, which I think is what Jesus means when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Here's what he, he says. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. That what Dostoevsky said, that what Jesus says here is we will all ask the question Sam Wise asks in Lord of the Rings to Gandalf. Does this mean everything sad is coming untrue? And when Jesus says come out, it will. And every suffering you thought was too late and it was over and it could never be made up for will be forgotten. Every tear that you shed where you were convinced God was absent and didn't show You'll know he was there. Where every broken thing in this world will be fixed and put back together. And everything of, of your life that had death in it will be raised to life. Everything sad will come untrue. That our death is a moment for the glory of God to shine. And I don't say that lightly. That the early Christians who were victims of great injustice and suffering and oppression... Actually, one of their main apologetics for why others, why Romans should become Christians was the way that Christians died. The Ignatius of Antioch, he wrote to Romans, listen, you guys, you guys die in hopelessness, but not us. You throw us in your coliseums, you take our property, you oppress us, you make us the victims of all kinds of injustice, but we die with hope. Because we know there's a voice who's going to undo all of our grief, all the injustice done to us, everything unfair in this life that we saw, experienced, we're a part of, it will all be done at his voice. So we can die. Go ahead, take us. And the church exploded because of the way Christians died. Which means my death will be one of the greatest evangelistic moments of my life. And again, I don't say that lightly. In fact, I almost don't want to say that because I'm afraid it may happen sooner. Um, but it will. Because in that moment, it's a chance for the glory of God to shine. For me to say, listen, it's not too late. There's someone coming for me. And that his voice, everything that's dead. In my life that I did, that was done to me, it's going to be raised back to life. And I'm not just going to come back the old, better version of me, but a brand new me, full of the resurrection and life-giving power of Jesus. Because anyone who believes in him, though they die, yet shall they live. So can you trust him? And I get there's only two answers to this question, right? To this question, where are you, God? Either he's not there, and that answer is enticing in this culture. And I don't want us as a church just to say, oh, we know that's wrong, it's ridiculous. We're filled with hope. No, that is a real problem in this world, full of the injustice and the grief and the sadness in this place. There's a reason people answer that question with God must not be there. 
But the only other option is that it's not too late. That there is a God, that someone is coming for us. And one of the reasons, or main reasons, I reject this as a reason to not believe in God is actually for a really simplistic reason. A reason every kid in this room will understand. Every student in this room will understand. Right, because every children's story ends the same way. And they lived happily ever after. That's why we watch The Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or Chronicles of Narnia. Because they always end the same way. It's predictable. Evil loses. Good wins. The hero shows up. And just when you think it's all going to fall apart, something grand happens. Just like John 11. And there's a reason in our hearts we sense that's, that's the true story. And we sense not just that that's a true story, but we're living in a story like that. And it's why we ask the question, sometimes whether we believe in God or not, where are you, God? Because we know there's someone there who's hearing that question and will at some point act, who will at some point come. That our story does not end with death and pain and sadness. Because there's someone coming for us. That's the point of John 11. That when Jesus sets out on that road, he's not just coming for Lazarus. That when he finally decides to go, the disciples don't want him to go heal Lazarus. In fact, they say, don't go. Jesus, you can't go. In verse 8, we, we hear their response when they say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? See, at the beginning of John 11, Jesus was in a place that was safe, where he was far from those who wanted to kill him. But Jerusalem was where the religious leaders were, those who sought to, to destroy him and stone him. And Lazarus lived two miles from Jerusalem. Which meant the only way Jesus was to go and heal Lazarus was if the religious leaders were to get their hands on him. The only way Lazarus was going to live is if Jesus died. And yet he set out on the road to the tomb of Lazarus, which eventually led to his cross. And he went. And not just for Lazarus, but for you and for me. So we know it's never too late. Especially when it looks like it is. That there's someone coming and his name is Jesus. He came for Lazarus. He came for me. He came for you because he's the resurrection and the life. And he comes to offer all of it to you and I. No matter the grief and the suffering that you face in this life, he can undo it all. And so there's some questions that only have one answer. It's come out. And Jesus has said it once. And he's going to say it again. To you and to me. Because it's never too late. So can you trust him? Let's pray. God, that is the question. Can we trust you? Especially when it looks like we can't. So God, I just want to pray for those who that's where they're at this morning. Whether they don't believe in you or they can't trust you because of whatever's happened in their life. I pray John 11 would root deeper in their hearts. They'd be filled with hope. And they'd know that even though you're a God who does things we don't understand, who delays when we plead for you, when, who, who is silent when we ask for you sometimes, that God, that doesn't mean you're not there and you're not coming. God, I can't convince any of that. That's the job of your spirit, and I pray it would do it now on our hearts. And for those of us, God, who are nearing our own death, 
are facing our own death, would you fill us with the hope of the resurrection? For Jesus didn't just overcome Lazarus's tomb. He overcame his own, and by overcoming his own, he overcame mine. Fill us with that hope, with your spirit, that we may worship for the glory of Jesus, which will undo our grief. Amen.